I didn't, I've heard that before. I've heard that the Beatles said that they're bigger than Jesus in the 60s. And uh, when I was researching that this past week, uh, you know, everything was misconstrued. Like they took it one way and then they just ran with it. And it was this big scandalous thing. And it was just kind of nice to know that like there were scandals of things said, you know, like back in the 60s, um, just as there is today. Uh, the Beatles certainly aren't bigger than Jesus. Uh, but uh, uh, this morning, you know, obviously we got this Hey Jude kind of like, you know, Beatles kind of theme. Uh, and we're going to be diving into this tiny little 25-verse letter, and we're going to get through 17 through 25 today and finish it together. If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you maybe go back to our Facebook Live, and you can listen in to the sermon there. I, I just want to say this. We have such a great team, a great staff here um, that work hard, not just on Sunday mornings, but beyond that. And our Facebook Live and YouTube channels last year in 2019 had over 90,000 minutes watched. And then our iTunes podcast had over 8,000 downloads last year, and that's over 200,000 minutes of teaching. And so uh, could you give a round of applause to all the people who help make that happen each and every week? And that said, there is an online audience all over uh, California and the United States and the world who uh, watch what we're doing here on Sunday. So I'm going to be a little bit more intentional about greeting you. So if you're listening now online, hey, thanks for coming. You're part of us. You're, we're in this together. Uh, so let's dive into Hey Jude. Now, many of, you, many of you may or may not have heard of a phrase, uh, something like this. If you believe that, then I've got a bridge to sell you or uh, I can sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, that's actual phrase that has come into our culture, and, and also Frank Sinatra said it in the 1947 movie, It Happened in Brooklyn. He sings that line. And then uh, even Bugs Bunny got in the act in 1949 cartoon, selling the Brooklyn Bridge. This was an actual thing. So what led to this? Are people actually trying to sell the Brooklyn Bridge? Yes, actually. Uh, this picture of William McClowney, known to the police as I.O.U. Brian, okay? I.O.U. O'Brien. And he was an early 20th century trickster, and in 1901, he was arrested and sent to prison for selling the Brooklyn Bridge. He was a con artist extraordinaire, pretending to be a wealthy landowner, forging documents of sale. He was a liar, a professional liar. Uh, and liars use half-truths, uh, statements taken out of context, misleading descriptions, words changed in meaning, outright fabrications, and they're designed to deceive or to hide the truth. Sometimes we see this in the media, sometimes we see it in politicians, sometimes we see it when John Lennon says, uh, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus right now. But William McClowney, he was found out. And now liars, they have many motivations, right? To make a sale, to win an election, to hide wrongdoings, to cheat someone, to gain favor. Whatever the reason, the real character of the liar is exposed when the truth comes out, when the truth is revealed. And in the early church, the first several hundred years of, uh, uh, of the church, uh, these liars arose, truth twisters who deliberately rejected and taught misguided truth, designed the, kind of their own faith, and their motivation was almost always to gain power. And last week in our Hey Jude series, we read about how these certain individuals, ungodly people, ungodly sinners, grumblers, fight fault finders, followers of their evil desires, worldly people, this is what they're called in the book of Jude. 
And Jude writes that these people have wormed their way and they've snuck their way into the local church and they're distorting God's grace and promoting evil. So Jude writes this harsh letter to kind of confront that, to make the people of God aware. And he uses a litany of different metaphors and stories that were familiar to his audience at the time. Uh, And he uses all these different metaphors and stories to say that liars will be found out, evil will be judged, and the good guys will win in the end. Now, the stories and the metaphors that he uses, we talked about this last week, are super familiar in the, in the first century, but they're very, very unfamiliar to us. And Jude doesn't just use famous stories in the Bible to illustrate this truth. He uses uh, random stories that are not found in the Bible, uh, books uh, that may sound like they're in the Bible, but they're apocrypha, they're hidden works. They didn't make it into the final book that became known as the Bible. Uh, The two largest being this, the Assumption of Moses. We find this, he's quoting this in verse 9, and then the book of Enoch, verses 14 and 15. He quotes these stories as if they are inspired. And we don't have time to look at every example, but we're going to look at one. So let's read verse 9. It says this, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, according to the Jewish and Christian tradition, the angels have a, there's a hierarchy. There's a ranking of angels. And Michael, his rank is high. Archangel is high. And this, this angelic being, Michael, makes appearances in the Old Testament as well. And so this story found in the Assumption of Moses is not in the Bible, but it's found in this, this ancient text. And the story goes something like this. Uh, Moses dies and the archangel Michael is sent to bury the body of Moses. And there's a conflict between him and the devil, and they began fighting or arguing about Moses' body. And Satan says that the body belonged to him because Moses was a murderer. He killed the Egyptian, okay? He was a murderer, so his body is mine. Uh, I have rights over it. I have rights over the earth. Well, Michael had every reason to rebuke Satan and say, ah, no, you don't you're a liar. He did not dare bring a slanderous accusation against him. Instead of using his own authority, he left the matter to God and said, the Lord rebuke you. And the devil withdrew knowing that the matter had been settled. That's the way the story goes. So what truth does that say to Jude, his audience? Why would he use that story? And then what truth does that speak to us nowadays? Remember, these wicked teachers are teaching something like the law doesn't matter do whatever you want. Don't listen to Moses or angels or God. Listen to us. And on top of that, they reject authority over them, and then they slander angelic beings. Now, what does that mean to slander angelic beings? No one knows, okay? I I don't know. Scholars have lots of different ways of interpreting that. We're not quite sure. But the point is, Michael refused to overstep his proper boundaries and take the place of God in judgment. Michael refuses to judge and therefore take the place of God, even in the case of the devil, who certainly deserved judgment. So if even a high-ranking angel would not dare speak a judgment in the place of God, then we probably shouldn't either. How many times have we also taken the place of God and judged others? We too have condemned people and certain groups of people to eternal judgment, all the while dwelling in our own self-righteousness. Well, we're in. These swindlers are brazen enough to do what even the archangel Michael wouldn't dare do. 
Look at verse 17. It says this. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. That last line is very interesting to me. These false teachers, they follow their natural instincts, not the spirit. Well, how do we know? How do we know that what we're doing is actually the spirit and not our own natural instincts? Here's a few. When you're following your instincts, it benefits yourself. When you're following the spirit, it benefits others. When you're following instincts, it's look at me. When you're following the spirit, it's look at God. When you're following instincts, you divide. When you're following spirit, you bring together. When you're following instincts, you get what you want. When you're following the spirit, you get what's best. I can remember way back in eighth grade, there was this kid. He was an outcast. At our school, like after you ate something, like you bought something, like you, everyone just left the trash. And there was a program at our junior high school where uh, if you would uh, bring a piece of trash to a certain person and put it in that trash can, they would give you a dime for every piece of trash you throw away. And uh, apparently that was a thing back when I was in junior high, and I didn't realize, you know, like how much money that could be if you end up doing this. But we had this one kid who would do that all the time. Every single lunch, every single break, he would pick up trash. So he would go up to people, he'd say, are you guys finished with that? And then he would take the trash. And you can know, you probably realize when you're a young teenager, you might get made fun of for something like this. I found out later that this guy was making a killing. He bought like uh, several go-karts with all the money he got from dimes, picking up trash during his lunch hours in junior high and high school. So I remember people teased him about it. Uh, can you remember someone like that at your school? Maybe there wasn't a dime, you know, trash thing, but there's someone at your school that got, got teased a lot. Maybe, maybe they were overweight. Maybe they, they looked different. Maybe they didn't have great hygiene. But we can all go back to junior high. We can all go back to thinking of that kid. Maybe you don't remember their name, but you remember their face. And maybe even back then, perhaps you too felt a stirring to do something good for them and to not join in the ridicule. I felt that. Did you? Way back then, something inside me moved towards friendship instead of ridicule. That would mean that I too would have to face the ridicule that he does if I defend him, if I befriend him. But something inside me moved me past instinct, moved me past self-preservation. Something inside me moved me past what was best for me and my reputation and my popularity. Something moved me towards love. And I believe that was the spirit. And I believe it was the spirit in you back then too when you were 13. Saying, go sit by that person. They're sitting by themselves. I think that's the spirit of God. And here's where it's most dangerous in the church when we're following our instincts and then claiming it's the Spirit. If someone is claiming it's the Spirit, but it doesn't lead to greater love, it's not the Spirit. The Spirit has left the building. 
Now you've made God the endorser of all these selfish and evil behaviors. And this is what the letter of Jude is condemning. Now I mentioned last week that the, the letter of Jude is like a sandwich, right? It has this beautiful intro, and the prose is beautiful. There's some nice sweet verses that you'd sign a yearbook with. And then, then the, the end of the, the chapter, there's this great conclusion, the summary. There's a great doxology, also really great. And then all the middle stuff is like this wrath and like judgment and huge critique. Uh, well, we turn to the conclusion now. We move past the warnings. Verse 20, it says this. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. How he started, he, he, be, he ends as well. Look at the correlation between verse 1 and verse 21. It'll be on the screens. Verse 1 is to those who are loved in God and kept for Jesus Christ. And then at the end, it's no longer loved, kept. It's keep yourselves. It's an ongoing thing in God's love. I love that. I love verse 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of Jesus to bring you to eternal life. That word wait, as you wait, I hate that word. I don't have a lot of patience. How many of you are like me, that like if you're in line for just a second, you pull out that phone? The last thing you could ever do is be by yourself with no phone. Like, I'm just going to stand there? Like, that's, that's misery, that's torture. This, that's not what the Bible's saying here. The Greek word here is prosdekomai. And it means to receive to oneself, to admit, to give access to oneself, and to expect, to expect the fulfillment of promises. So we let Jesus in, we give him access to our lives, ourselves, and we expect him to fulfill his promises. Keep in God's love. Keep yourself in God's love. Trust his grace. Lean into his mercy. Run into his arms after failure and run into his arms after victory. We often do it after failure. We're like, yes, I'm going to run into God's arms. I'm sorry. I, I need you. Pick me up. And then things are going great. And we're like, not interested. This is keeping yourself in God's love. Then this phrase, eternal life. Eternal life. Now, I know as soon as I say the phrase eternal life, it conjures up all kinds of images of like pearly gates and heaven when we die. Angels, perhaps there's harps, chubby babies, like playing harps on a cloud, okay? Eternal life, that's where we go. If you could suspend those thoughts just for a moment, okay? Because I don't think that eternal life mentioned in the scriptures, it, it may not mean what we think it means, or at least it doesn't only mean what we think it means, Look at John chapter 12, 25. I think this helps clarify. It says this, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, in English, we only have one word for life. Life, okay? In Greek, there's at least three. And the apostle John uses two of them in this passage. Uh, the first one is suke, and the second is zoe. Suke, life, is... It's bound by space and time. It's the kind of life that we experience here on earth. There's ups, there's downs, there's tears, there's laughter, happy, sad, good things, bad things. It's life in general. That's suke, okay? We're all a part of suke life. Then there's zoe life. It's the kind of life that is not bound by time. 
the kind of life that exists outside of time, the kind of life not bound by circumstances. There's joy and abundant life even in the midst of bad things. It isn't constantly up and down. And this is the kind of life that Jesus came to give us. And notice in this verse, John uses both, okay? Here it is in the Greek, and, and we'll just kind of a, point out which two versions he uses. Anyone who loves their life, suke, will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life, suke, in this world will keep it for eternal life, zoe. The word eternal here is ionios. It's where we get the word ion or age or era. Ionios. It means life of the ages. The Zoe kind of life is a life of the ages. It's abundant life here and now. It's a synonym. John uses it as a synonym for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use. John defines it later in his gospel. Look at this. John 17, 3. This is beautiful. Jesus says this. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. You can do that before heaven. You can do that before the pearly gates. Eternal life is a present reality, not just a distant future. And I think this is a big, huge problem in the church today is because we all end up just focusing in on what's next and we neglect what's here and now and what God wants to do here and now. In my own Christian life, I raised my hand to like to receive Jesus. I remember the first time I ever did that was at a play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Is anybody familiar with this? Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames is this, this production that goes from, from church to church all over the United States and all over the world. And what it is, is it's uh, the, a picture, fictional stories of people dying and then going up here to the throne of God. And it is it is horrendous. Satan comes out in a mask. He's got this evil laugh. And the whole point of the play is this. And this, this might be sound offensive, but it's to scare the hell out of you, okay? It's that, that hell is so bad, so you better raise your hand. And so I raised it. I, I was born again, and I was born again again, okay? I, I kept raising that hand because I wanted to be sure. And, every, and so the first decade of my Christian life was spent only focused in on avoiding hell and getting to heaven. It wasn't until 10 years in my Christian life that I realized, oh, Jesus can change my life now? I don't have to wait for the benefits of heaven until I die? And Jesus began to radically transform my life in a new way, a new fresh way. It wasn't just about life then it's about life here and now. It's not just about escaping earth and going to heaven. It's about bringing heaven down to earth. Think back to the most beautiful of sunrises you can remember. Sunrises, man, on, or, or sets on the horizon, it's just beautiful, spectacular. Bright orange, reds, blues, all the colors of the rainbow. And if you have a really incredible photographer, they can capture that sunset. And they're like, man, that's, that's amazing. Uh, you can capture it pretty well. And if you did a little Photoshop, you can make it even better. Here's an example. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that's screensaver worthy, right? It's a great picture, and then you add it. Oh, it's good. It's good. The picture, the picture is there. It's meant to be enjoyed. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with the picture. It's great. But when night comes, if you thought that the picture was an actual source of light, you're going to be disappointed, right? It's dark out here. No problem. I've got a picture of a sunrise right here. We're good. Uh, 
A firefly can generate more light than that picture. It doesn't even generate enough light to see itself because it's not its nature. The picture, that is the suke life. It's beautiful. It's meant to be enjoyed. Have fun, but it's not its nature to provide life or it's not its nature to provide light. The zoe is the sunrise. If you're looking for light, you will find it there. This is the life Jesus offers us. And it wells up through eternity. Why can't we figure out that the picture isn't providing light? I keep doing all these things. I'm working all this overtime. I'm making lots of money. I'm doing all the things that they say that will make me happy. And I, I'm not feeling any life. I'm not feeling any joy. Well, the suke life is not meant to provide joy. It can make us happy, but it will end. Zoe life doesn't end. If you want something that will never end and isn't dependent on the ebb and flows of life, that's Zoe. John is saying, I want you to know that the kind of life that Jesus promises is here and you can share in that joy now. It will require you to lose your life to gain it. Uh, Jude continues with, a, with a, a line that feels a bit random. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Thanks, Jude. Uh, where'd that come from? I read this Lord Tennyson, great Englishman, said, there lies more faith in honest doubt than in half the Christian creeds. Doubt is, it's like the D word in church. You're not supposed to have doubt. We talk about this a lot. And actually, one of our core values is that we want to be real. And that means real about our doubt and real about our faith. Um, doubt can be a doorway for spiritual growth. When I was, I was a youth pastor for 11 years, and I remember having this girl come up to me um, after church one Sunday. And she said, John, I'm going through one of those times in my life where I don't believe that God exists anymore. Can you pray for me? And I found the irony so beautiful that she's proclaiming a disbelief in God while asking and affirming that belief in that God by asking me to pray for her. The redemptive irony is amazing. Her asking for prayer demonstrated a faith that coexisted with her expressed doubt. Although her doubt is not that rare in Christianity, I think her brutal honesty was. The church has traditionally been not a good place to express doubt. In fact, it's been one of the worst places to express doubt. It's one of the unspoken rules of Christian spirituality. If you have doubts, whatever you do, don't share them with another Christian because they will think of you different, they will consider you less spiritual, and they may end the conversation in a condescending tone saying, I'll pray for you. No. No. There's nothing wrong with praying for someone with doubts, but there's a lot wrong in the Christian community when we can't be authentic and honest. This has to change. The Bible is full of prayers and songs where people are yelling at God, saying, where are you? God, you're not living up to your side of the bargain. God, all the bad guys are winning. All the good guys are losing. You're piercing me with your arrows, and God never strikes him down with lightning. The most spiritual people I know are the most honest and authentic people I know. There's no pretending. They walk in communion with the Lord, and even when they doubt, they continue to pursue Jesus. Doubt can lead to a more examined faith. By doubting a belief, then examining it, you can decide to discard it, adjust it, or keep it as is. Short, easy answers are the last thing that doubts and questions need. This is why small groups are important. You can be able to be honest. 
you can go, you know, when, when John said that on stage, like, I don't know if that sat right with me. Like, can we talk through that? Awesome. No better place to do that than in a living room, at a coffee house, and just talking through it. I once, I once heard that this, the Bible said this, like, and then you start wrestling through it. I'm going through this right now, and we're just honest. And so we're not trying to get you to go to small groups so that we can say, yeah, we have, you know, half our church signed up for small groups. No, it's because it's a great place for authenticity and honesty and feedback and questions and doubts and faith. And so we want to encourage you to think about it, to sign up. Verse 23 says this, one of the more confusing verses. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by their corrupted flesh. He's saying, help those who are tempted to follow these false teachers. Uh, help them leave it all behind. Now, I want to finish the book. We'll read the last two verses together. So would you read these out loud with me? This is not something we do very often at Prodigal, but I think it's powerful that as we finish this short letter, that we read this doxology, this ending of the letter together. You can follow along on the screens right here. Here we go. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. That word ages there is, is Ionios. As the letter began, so it ends with assurance. God can keep you from falling to present you holy, pure, spotless, and blameless. Some of you are going through a difficult time right now. You probably don't have false teachers worming their way into your community, corrupting the grace of God, slandering angels and angelic beings. That's probably not your issue. But you do have some intense difficulties. You've got some trials. You have some crisis. But in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your crisis, God can use them to mold and shape you. It's spring. Flowers are in bloom. Picture of a tree pruning, right? If you're a tree and a farmer or a gardener or someone with a green thumb, like, comes up and, like, trims you, like, prunes you, you're like, ow, stop. A branch falls to the ground. It's painful. You're exposed. Why does that happen? To help you bear more fruit. It's not just to hurt you. It's to help you. It's not to hurt you. It's to heal you. It's to be, help, you help, help you become better. Or take, for example, a sculptor. You're a statue, and the sculptor comes up with a chisel and a hammer, and he chisels something off, and you're, oh, that's pain. It's broken. It shatters on the floor. You're in pain. You're more exposed. It's not to cause you pain. It's to cause growth in you, to carve you more into the image of who you're called to be, more and more Christ-like, more and more loving, less and less judgmental, less and less a gossip, more and more encouraging. God is shaping you, molding you. I want to invite knowing the band to come up. Some of you, this is at home because you're in it right now. You're going through a relational crisis. You're going through a marriage crisis. You're going through an addiction crisis. You're going through a financial crisis. You're going through something. And crises are like knives. You can grab them by the blade and they'll cut you, or you can grab them by the handle and you can use them. They'll be useful. 
And some of us, these troubles and trials, we're grabbing them by the blade and wondering why it's, hurt, it's so painful. And God says, no, I'm not doing this to wound you. I'm doing this for you to use this. Use this to grow closer to me. Use this to be a better husband, a better father. Use this to be a better mother, a better wife. Use this to be a better follower of Jesus. God is pruning you. God is chiseling you to make you more into the mold of Jesus, the prime example of who we're called to be, of what we're called to be, like Jesus, Christ-like, Christian. That's our name. Let's live it. So God, thank you for the book of Jude and for how it shapes us and molds us, and we thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that you call us in the midst of our own failures, God. Thank you, God, that the chips that fall off our shoulders— Though they may hurt, God, you're making us more of the person you've called us to be. Though pruning these twigs and branches, these offshoots in our lives is painful, God, you're helping us bear more fruit, more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And so, God, I pray that eternal life would well up, the Zoe kind of life that you promise us, the life of the ages. God, we thank you for life after death, but God, we pray for more life before death. God, we need, we need that. Help us to be a picture of heaven, a picture of your great love. Draw people closer to you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare these things together?